Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Training Underscore Data, a podcast series from IQTEL Cosmicworks. If you are a frequent listener, then you will notice that there has been a gaping hole in the podcasting community, and that hole has been that I have been not on a recent episode. Well, fear not. I am back, and it's great to be not just be back, but talking about our most favorite topic, which is SpaceNet. And to join us in today's discussion, we have two guests, and may I add, two first-time guests. So there's a lot of firsts here, and without further ado, let's get into it. So joining us uh, today is Grace Kitzmiller. She is a Principal Product Manager at AWS uh, Disaster uh, Response. Grace, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks so much, Ryan. I'm really excited to join today, even as a first-timer, and really looking forward to the SpaceNet 7 Challenge. And then also joining us to talk about uh, the SpaceNet 7 Challenge and all of its details and what makes it unique is Jesus Martinez Monzo. He's the Engineering Manager for Machine Learning at Planet. Jesus, welcome. Hi, Ryan. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's a big uh, pleasure and an, and an honor uh, to be here. <laughs> so I'm very excited. He may be the training data uh, most frequent, or MVP, I should say, the grandmeister of computer vision himself, Adam Venon. Adam, welcome back. As usual, I am begrudgingly present. <laughs> and uh, the voice of reason on the Cosmic team, uh, none other than Daniel Hogan. Daniel, it's good to have you back on the show. Great to be here. And so today we're not just talking uh, about SpaceNet in general or perhaps uh, applied research connected to it, but we're talking about our upcoming challenge, specifically the SpaceNet 7 challenge. And you know, we brought on uh, both Grace and Jesus today to talk about this because we're really pushing the ball forward in terms of where we want to go in the SpaceNet effort. And today, on today's episode, we'll be talking about how we're doing so, both from the data set perspective as well as the analytic perspective. You know, and I think one of the things you know, that we sometimes glaze over, and this is, if there is fault, it is mine alone, is that you know, we often jump right into the specifics of the challenge. And I think it's worth taking a step back, particularly in the context of SpaceNet 7, to talk about why we're doing this effort and why this effort be, matters beyond uh, applications such as foundational mapping and for uh, more timely efforts such as humanitarian assistance. You know, and I, I think specifically, and we'll talk about this when we get into the details, but SpaceNet 7 really allows us to uh, look at one specific aspect of the disaster response scenario, which is time series analysis. You know, Adam, you know, what makes time series analysis sort of different from our previous efforts? Yeah, it, it's a totally new dimension, right? So we've kind of had two white whales in SpaceNet, right? Over the the many the many years we've been doing this, right? One was SAR, which I think was very successful for SpaceNet six, and the other one is time series analysis, right? One one we've been chasing for years, at least been interested in for years. Um, but it, as we'll get into, right? It, it's it's tricky to get a good time series data set. Heck, I mean, Ryan, you'll remember this. Uh, when I interviewed with Cosmic five years ago, I, I brought that up That's in right. my interview, right? That was That's what right. I was most excited about <laughs> when I joined the team. So I'm really excited for the, the time series aspect. We yeah, just adding that extra dimension, right? It's already a tricky problem, geospatial analysis from a satellite in orbit. Uh, when you add that time dimension, it, it's a lot more complicated, but 
a, a ton more impactful. So I, I don't want to preempt some of the, the points that, that Jesus and Grace will make, but I'm super excited about it. And, and you're right. I mean, it, it's, it speaks to how far I think the geospatial and space uh, uh, 3.0 industry has come along from the time of, you know, when we started Cosmic and you joined to today. And it, if you would have said, you know, during that first interview that we could be doing something like this completely in the open source, I, I don't think I would have believed you. I would have been pumped, but I don't, I don't, I don't know if I would have said, yeah, I can guarantee we're going to get that done. And so it's, it's great to see the industry outpace some of our sort of wildest expectations. And, you know, there's a lot of aspects to this, right? And, you know, if you follow our space and efforts, over the years, or really any of our research, you'll clearly know that access to leading edge uh, cloud computing services such as storage, and more specifically, advanced compute uh, resources with GPUs is critical for this whole effort. Uh, it, it drives a majority of the deep learning uh, research. But you know, there's, there's a broader story here uh, when we start talking about how uh, cloud services can fit into applications like humanitarian assistance. And so it's really interesting where we almost have two different technology areas converging, the, the advances of data collection and analysis of those data, and then uh, the tools and services that actually make them useful to end users in the field that perhaps may have very, very tight timelines. So, you know, Grace, you know, why don't we, before we get into the specifics of this and why you're interested, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing at AWS and then what kind of attracted you in second to, to SpaceNet? Sure. Thanks, Ryan. And I think you've, you're really touching on some emerging trends um, that are just really building up over time to, to make some things that weren't possible a few years ago just really possible today. And that's, that's something that's really exciting. Um, a little bit of background on the AWS Disaster Response Program. Uh, this is an initiative that was launched in 2018, and it's focused on improving non-government, non-profit, humanitarian organizations, as well as government agencies' uh, response and resiliency capabilities across both a natural disaster and different kinds of crisis life cycles. Uh, with the DR program, we work backwards from the technology needs of, of these many different kinds of organizations to help solve some of the biggest infrastructure and technology challenges that they encounter when they're preparing for, responding to, or recovering from a disaster. And we do that by bringing people, information, and technology. So uh, we engage with AWS experts to assist with those technology challenges. We also connect organizations with information or information providers or curate information. And then we work across AWS to identify, you know, those services, technology, and partner solutions that could either meet currently or be extended to meet the needs of these different kinds of organizations. And so this, you know, just the increased usage of uh, machine learning, just the growing availability of that free and open source geospatial imagery, um, potentially enriched with other imagery, um, and the availability of, of different machine learning resources, GPU and other kinds of resources on, on AWS, um, we're really starting to see organizations in the humanitarian and other communities start to take a second look at, hey, how can we bring these pieces together to really help with our response activities? And what's you know, particularly compelling uh, is that increasingly, uh, work such as what we're doing here in the in the open source 
uh, can really make an impact. And, you know, I, I'm increasingly stunned, and, and we'll talk a little bit about this when we discuss the evaluation metric, at just how performant uh, some of these models are becoming, even just from, that are derived from the SpaceNet challenge. So, you know, I'm, I'm particularly interested, you know, to see the, the level of interest that comes out uh, uh, from the community based on the results of this challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think, you know, there's, and, and you deal with this a lot more right, uh, than we do, right? There's a fine line of when something goes from interesting to actually usable. And I, I hope we can maybe learn a little bit about what that threshold is through this, F, through this challenge and then everything that comes, uh, comes after that. Yeah, I'll say uh, straight in a funny way, I was just having a conversation about this earlier today with, uh, with a few colleagues. You know, there's a difference between having um, access to sort of the basic and the, the raw information and then taking that information and looking at how can you transform it? How can you gain insights from it? And um, so that's one of the reasons why uh, we've, you know, AWS has engaged with SpaceNet. There's just so much work that you're doing related to, you know, curating geospatial resources, developing great partnerships around the, the resources and imagery that are available. Um, and then the focus on developing those reusable and open source models that, you know, can just be made available to, to anyone that wants to use them, anyone that might want to, you know, tailor or customize them or retrain them or improve them. There are so many opportunities to have impact. Uh, one of the things that we're seeing with the DR program is we're, we're just seeing so many more organizations explore how the imagery combined with machine learning and other types of analytics can make a difference across all phases of a disaster. You know, AWS offers a broad set of, you know, storage, compute, analytics, machine learning that when combined with that imagery, uh, you know, including some imagery available on open data sets program, SpaceNet imagery, planet imagery, um, you know, can really start to bring those use cases to life. Uh, we're also seeing organizations look at creating um, more of an imagery pipeline to understand things like their baseline or their current state. Uh, this is where changes over time becomes really important. I think building change over time is probably just a first step. I'm not sure yes. what future challenges you have in mind, but uh, it seems like this is a, a building block also for future challenges. Um, but being able to identify, um, you know, emergent or ongoing trends that could contribute to disasters. Um, and looking at how understanding these changes over time could also help with impacting preparation and triaging response and resource allocation to accelerate recovery. Well, and you hit on a key point, Grace, which is, and it's something that we, we do talk a lot about. Uh, for those of you that follow us in the space that just turned four recently in, in our anniversary post, you know, we were talking about how our goal has been to uh, systematically build resources that complement each other. And so and while if you go all the way back to 2016, you know, our first uh, effort with SpaceNet 1 was just one city and a sta static image. Uh, SpaceNet 4, we were using a really unique collect from Maxar where uh, we were looking at off-nator imagery, which did include some level of time series because that collect was over a span of a little under five minutes. Then to six, looking at multimodal with both uh, high resolution uh, data as well as SAR, you know, we're, SpaceNet 7 is, is just really the next step, right? Is as we build out these core capabilities for one city and then different look angles and then, and then multimodal, now the next question is, can we do this over time, right? And uh, a lot of this, uh, for anyone who's worked in machine learning will tell you, 
uh, getting access to a great data set, uh, both the, the raw collect and the labels that are consistent with a, with a specific machine learning challenge is, is a huge hurdle. And we're really excited that uh, Jesus and, and Planet uh, were able to come forward, uh, join us as our newest partner, and then uh, really help drive this challenge along with your team, Grace. And so, Jesus, why don't you tell us a, a little bit about Planet, uh, a little bit about you know, your team and, and kind of what you've been doing, and then we'll get into you know, how you got interested in space and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks. Uh, yeah, so I guess I will start talking a little bit about our planet as a company. So planet, uh, is a, we are a provider of air Earth observation data. Uh, we are we're a company that builds and operates uh, large constellations of imaging satellites. And our focus, uh, what makes us special, is that we want to provide global coverage, also high temporal revisit, and also high resolution, uh, high enough so that we can discover and track change uh, wherever it's happening. Um, all around the world. And so what we provide is not only the imagery, uh, but also derived data layers. Uh, and that's, uh, that's what my team in particular does. We work on the, on the transformations from, that go from um, radiometric pixels onto semantic data layers. For example, uh, various kinds of land cover mapping, such as uh, buildings, roads, etc. And uh, yeah, and we have been uh, very interested in SpaceNet. Uh, we've been following SpaceNet for, for many years uh, so far. Uh, it's obviously the, the number one platform for open source uh, geospatial ML uh, competitions. So of course, we were always very excited um, about it. And, uh, and really, uh, since SpaceNet is focused uh, on foundational mapping, uh, that's, that happens to be very aligned with what we do. A lot of our time as a team is spent precisely you know, deriving these kinds of products. And so we felt like we really wanted to contribute planet data to SpaceNet and help in the advancement of techniques of time series analysis, uh, which obviously uh, it's, it's very, it's novel and it's highly impactful. Yeah, I think the, the time series aspect is particularly interesting uh, in the kind of disaster response scenario that we often talk about. Obviously, you know, Grace has got a lot more background in that and Jesus than, than I do or the whole Cosmic team. But, but that timeliness aspect is something that, that we're really excited to have um, because we can, we've been chasing it for a while. And uh, this is the first time we've had a, a long time series. And so looking at the actual change um, is something that we can actually do now. I think the tools we've built to date for SpaceNet apply well to this type of problem of, of looking at change, but they haven't actually been tested against an actual time series. And so to be able to do that with this data set it's something that, that we're really excited for. Uh, and I think it, it builds upon some other challenges that have happened as of late that have had like a, a shallow time series or maybe two different shots. But the, the data set we have, we'll talk about more in a second, but you know, 24 months-ish uh, of data uh, is, is a lot different than just two snapshots. So that's a huge change. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning how models would from this challenge or additional applied research could actually be used in, in, a, in a future scenario. So this is kind of a, a toss up, you know, Grace to both you and, and Jesus, like you know, looking at some uh, before and after effect uh, is clearly important. But I think as we dig into this problem and we'll certainly discuss this challenge, it can be a lot more complex than that. Because a lot of times it's not just two shots, it can be multiple shots. So I'm curious, you know, as Adam's highlighting, I'm curious from both of your perspectives, how could, like, a, uh, what would you be looking for in a perfect state from a machine learning model 
from either this challenge or future work to be applied to like a really deep time series stack? What are the sort of things you'd be looking for, uh, whether it's in some type of disaster response scenario? Well, um, I think that, uh, yeah, you, you totally uh, nailed the, the point. Um, changes, you, you can treat change as binary, but uh, what's really useful is to, is to sample change as a process to really uh, get to understand, not only detect it uh, while it's happening, so it's, it's just so you're aware, but also be able to describe uh, all its components and if there are any additional features within. Um, so, so that's why uh, it's, yeah, and, and that's important so that you can act on it. And of course that, uh, if you have that capability, that enables enormous value uh, for uh, a variety of applications, um, you know, a planet, uh, we were very focused, like I said before, on change and really having enough temporal revisit to, to sample all these different processes. And we found many, uh, many applications where this really uh, totally changes the game. Uh, for example, in the case of uh, humanitarian cases, uh, such as the buildup of temporary camps or settlements around the world, which is something that happens relatively fast within you know, a couple of months or even less. Um, and so that's, uh, that's a very clear uh, use case. But also there are many more, uh, perhaps less obvious use cases in the in like civil government, um, in particular uh, detecting, for example, urban growth in regions with, uh, with higher risk, uh, for instance, of, of flooding. Uh, in, in fact, a couple of years ago, we did a, a study where we combined uh, some of the foundational uh, change detection uh, that you can uh, source from this data with uh, other maps of flood risks, of flood, flood risk zones in, the, in some parts of the world. And we found that we can indeed uh, detect these hotspots of risk uh, and, and potentially communicate that to local authorities so that they can do something about it. So they can be aware that a lot of people are at risk. And, and beyond that, uh, there's, there's another, also another very interesting use case, which, it, and this is a, a bit different. This is not just sampling change while it's happening. That's uh, a leading indicator of something changing, deforestation. We can detect places that are going to be deforested before that happens. And to, to explain this, I'll, I'll just say that whenever, you, whenever someone clears a big piece of uh, forest in, in, in the rainforest, it doesn't just happen like that, right? Uh, there is sometimes some kind of constructions, there are some roads and maybe some small urban settlements around, and that's got a clear leading indicator. So uh, if, we can, if we can develop techniques to, and data to detect change, uh, fast enough, then we can definitely um, approach uh, all these different use cases. Yeah, and when, I, when I'm just listening to some of your examples, Jesus, like it, it, it reminds me we're in this, at least from the machine learning perspective, that we're almost in this tale of two cities situation in that, on the one hand, the models, uh, at least in, in my time alone, have advanced rapidly, and they're, they're becoming much highly performant. On the other hand, though, when you think about applications, we're still in the early days of exploring uh, different use cases. Just some of the things you're describing are really just in the last year or two where people are really starting to not just talk about it, but apply it. And I, I find that just easily one of the most interesting things in this field. And if you don't get excited about it, then I don't know what we have in common. Before we change, Grace, anything to add from your perspective on the, on the uh, AWS uh, DR side? Yeah, absolutely. Um, building on what on Jesus's comments around detecting changes that happened, um, longer analysis of change over time, identifying risky areas, hotspots, and trending. Um, this is, 
you know, being able to understand um, what urbanization looks like, how population density might be changing, um, these changes in green space. Um, this information is actually also very important to preparing for disasters, right? So this information is really critical. It's really key um, for those that are working on the front end of a disaster um, to try and you know, develop a plan to project the impacts of the community of a flooding, to try and project what resources might be needed after a disaster occurs, um, or to more quickly project what those needs actually are, um, even if the, you know, maybe they weren't able to, to do as much on the planning front end. So really developing, uh, looking at how this detection over time can help impact the preparation side of the cycle. Um, it means that they can also respond faster um, and have the right resources or are more likely to have the right resources available in order to uh, deliver a response and have a better impact on the community. And then just even thinking about this a little bit differently, you know, thinking about machine learning and the insights that it generates and how it can be used as a, a tool to provide additional information for situational awareness and supporting decision making. Um, you know, organizations that use volunteers to support mapping, like say humanitarian open street maps team, um, having available, you know, models and resources that could automatically detect um, changes in urbanization over time, those can, you know, be extended to have triggers that notify um, organizations that have a need to know about those kinds of changes that, hey, you might wanna go out and do some more mapping or, or remap this certain area. And so also creatively thinking about, you know, as change over time detection becomes something that there are more, there's more robust modeling around, um, how can you use that as a trigger um, for other activities re related to uh, the different kinds of analysis related to not only disaster response, but uh, many other use cases as well. Then in, in two, two points on that. First, you know, I, it, it, particularly on this topic, I, I sometimes have a propensity to, to jump to the actual response at post-event. And I think you, you bring up a great point, uh, Grace, and this is something that a, a colleague at ours at InQtel, he's on our B-Next uh, uh, biology team, Dylan George, talks a lot about is mainly in the context of pandemic response, is that there is a significant amount of thought that has to go into just planning where the, well, how much stuff do you need and then where does this, where should this stuff probably go? And uh, I think if there was a, a spectrum of, of uh, maturity in terms of where work outputs from Space at 7 may fall, I would say certainly in that planning stage, I think is, is uh, more squarely in, in the near term, which I think is, is particularly compelling. And the, and the second piece is, is those that you know, may not be as familiar uh, with uh, the disaster response or mapping community groups, like the sheer mobilization that a group like HOT can do is, is impressive. I remember the first time I, I joined one of their mapping efforts, and I thought, oh, I was like, are these numbers, right? There are thousands of people mapping? That, that is, uh, one, it was impressive, and two, it, it uh, also indicated to me I am a terrible mapper, and so I needed a lot of, I needed a lot of work, or I was perhaps way too reliant upon machine learning, uh, but I, I think it's a fantastic point, Grace, that even if uh, this remains a work in progress for the collective community for years. Anything that can help those uh, volunteers and those organizations accelerate their work from a data collection and then uh, annotation perspective, then that's a win. And so I, I, you know, I think, you know, let's, 
let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, uh, we're going to dive into all the great stuff, which is the specifics of the challenge. And so hang tight and uh, we'll be right back. All right, the arrival of September marks the end of summer. And before you know it, we'll be in holiday season, which means you need to start laying your holiday plans now. Adam, what are you doing this December? Is there anything on, on your list? I think there's something in Vancouver, Canada. Um, that's, I, I don't remember exactly what it is. Do you remember what it is, Ryan? Is I do remember what it is oh, because it is on every person's wish list I had this year. And if you're, if you're not familiar, we're talking about NeurIPS 2020. Adam, what's happening in NeurIPS? So uh, something we're really excited about is that SpaceNet 7 has been accepted as a NeurIPS competition. Uh, and so it will be featured there uh, and the results announced there. Uh, but, you know, for those who might not know, uh, NeurIPS is one of the more prestigious conferences out there. So we're thrilled to be a part of it this year. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, and you can find uh, more information uh, about uh, the NeurIPS uh, competition track, as well as everything related to SpaceNet 7 uh, on our website, spacenet.ai, and then just look under uh, the tab of, of the SpaceNet 7 challenge. All right, with that, back to the show. All right, everyone, we're back. And, you know, Adam, here we are again. Uh, for those of you that may not know, this is Adam's third time, I repeat, third time serving as challenge manager, which gives him one the hat trick. And if I were uh, treating Adam uh, in the Indiana Jones dichotomy, I would say that SpaceNet 7 is going to be the last crusade, which is the best of the three. Um, that's a non-negotiable part. We can talk about that in another podcast if people wish. So Adam, uh, last crusade, here we go. You mentioned we've been circling uh, this idea uh, for a while. Uh, what really convinced us that we, A, thought we could get this uh, done, and then B, really motivating you to come back for uh, one more time? Yeah, I mean, I, I think with these kind of things, right, the, the simple answer is, is where do you start? Uh, you start with the data, right? And to give a little history, we had this conference that uh, both Cosmic Team attended as well as this planet, and that was kind of the germination of this discussion of, you know, is it possible to get time series data in? Is, is this something that we can do? And then, you know, you know, jumping forward a little bit, you know, we've realized that, you know, look, Planet has some, some data that they're willing to share and both the imagery is, is solid and the labels are solid. If you got the imagery, you got the labels and you have a solid data set, then you're ready to go, right? So that, that's, again, it's a simplistic answer, but, but that's really what it is, is, you know, we, we have this great data set with SpaceNet 7 and, and, um, and then from there, it was, it's actually been a lot of work, a lot of fun work to figure out exactly how to, to point this data set towards a meaningful challenge. Um, but, but again, you know, once you got the data, then, then you're kind of off the races, uh, especially given the, the real quantity that we have here. And we can get into that a little bit later on the actual details of the data set. So what is the, the construct of the, of the challenge? I mean, obviously, we have been focused on uh, foundational mapping, so building footprints, road network identification, and routing. Uh, what are we really looking for here? And then we'll jump into how the data set supports this and how we're going to evaluate it. But at a high level, what, what are we looking to do out of this? 
Yeah, we wanted to do something, you know, change detection, right? We have this great temporal data set. So, so how do we do something interesting? And, and you know, we're certainly not the first people by any stretch to, to look at change detections from overhead. Uh, but one thing I think that's pretty unique about this challenge, uh, which is uh, made possible by the, by the data set, is that we're looking at a little higher fidelity than people have often in the past. So kind of what you've seen, you know, uh, in recent years, often, not always, but often with change detection from satellite is kind of a rough idea of what's changing in an area. You know, that, that's helpful in a, lot of, in a lot of ways. But what we're doing here is we're going a lot more precise. And, you know, you can always back out from precise to rough, but you can't do the opposite, right? So we're, we're looking at individual building footprints uh, is a long time series of imagery. And most of these are picked to have some kind of dynamic change. Um, so we're tracking the building footprints over time. And not even just the, the location of the buildings, but a unique identifier, which you could call an address, right? We don't, we don't have the actual street address, but, but I think what's more important is that if each building has a unique identifier and we track that through time, that really has a high fidelity look into what's going on in that area, right? And, and being able to track that precise change of, of footprints gives you an idea of population, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of these, these applications we talked about earlier and, and how to actually measure that, we'll get into more later as well, because that's tricky to, to even measure something this kind of complex is like, let's look at change of building footprints as well as, as, well as unique identifiers. Uh, but again, it's, it's the fidelity, I think, that's really interesting here of individual, you know, residential size buildings. We're not, about, we're not talking about like warehouses, we're talking about, you know, single family homes as well. And that, that I think is pretty impactful. What sort of scale are we talking about here? Like in the past, you know, we've had data sets that have included uh, several different geographic locations, you know, the goal being, you know, scene diversity uh, or seasonal diversity. You know, Jesus, what's, this, what's the scale here? We, we, we wanted to, to create a data set that uh, was large and also comprehensive, that really captures not only the, the full diversity or at least a lot of the diversity globally of, of our planet uh, in terms of uh, uh, regions and territories, but also across time. Um, this is indeed the, the largest and, and most diverse data set that we have released uh, so far. And we do believe that it does have a very good representation of that variety of urban growth around the world. The data set includes uh, samples, uh, regions with uh, very large growth of very large buildings, and maybe what you would think in your head that the, the sort of typical uh, big urban changes, but also a lot of uh, urban sprawl. And uh, all the types of buildings that maybe you, you, you didn't even know that they existed. Certainly, I certainly learned a lot by, uh, with the development of this data set on how urbanization looks in different parts of the world. And I think that's very important to, to keep in mind. The world, the world is very large, it's very diverse, and we sometimes are very biased uh, towards certain locations that we're just more used to. And so we, we thought that, that was very important. Um, and then secondly, the, the temporal aspect is key here. Uh, as, as we've mentioned before, the, there, are other, there are other assets out there that uh, have like before and after imagery, and that's great. But here, we really wanted to sample the process of, of building. So uh, here we're providing for every data point that we have, which is, uh, we have 100 different locations around the world. For each one, we have roughly 24 uh, images. Uh, each one uh, represents one month, so it's a total of two years. This imagery is uh, 
it's based on uh, mosaics from the Dove constellation uh, from planet. Uh, this mosaics, what they do is that they, they get all the captures, all the individual image captures from the satellites throughout a month and they pick the best ones and then just collage them into a nice looking cloud-free uh, image. And very similar to what you see in, in Google Maps, for example, when you turn the imager layer, you see that the image is, is sort of pristine, it comes in tiles and it's cloud-free. <laughs> so uh, we were following a very similar format and that's uh, precisely because it's very, it makes it much easier to do computer vision and to build applications on top of it. If you have grids where you, you know what to expect. So no, that's awesome. And yeah. I, I, I'm stunned, you know, it just bl blows me when we were first talking about this data set, you know, assigning unique IDs to 10 million building footprints was rather daunting. And I, I was a little worried about everyone on this thread. Emails were coming in late. You get a little too obsessed with the data set, which is always a good thing uh, in, in my view. But I think since uh, that aspect is uh, A, I think unique in terms of data sets, B, it's going to play a big role in what we're really uh, challenging uh, competitors to do. I think it's worth teasing out a little bit. Like, how do we actually uh, assign a, a addresses? Like, how does that work? And then I'm also curious as from everyone, uh, from their view, why is tracking a specific building, not just pixel change, so important? Yeah, and in, in theory, assigning a, a unique identifier to a building should be easy, right? Like in theory, they don't really move around and they should be somewhat static. In practice, it's, it's a little tricky uh, because there are some examples um, in these uh, in this imagery, right, of there are, there are some clouds still, right? So the planet team, you know, they make mosaics and they, they do the best they can to, to get a cloud-free area. But unsurprisingly, and sometimes you have clouds, right? And, and this is not a bad thing. All oh, this is great because this is realistic, right? Um, and so then you, what sometimes some areas that are just cloudier than others, right? You have cloud cover covering certain months and then some kind of buildings pop in and out of existence, right? Like I always think of them like quarks, just subatomic particles, just seemingly random. Um, <laughs> and, and so then you kind of have to track things and then, you know, these often, these buildings are often very small, a pixel scale, right? So this, this imagery from, from, from planet, right, is four meters, um, which uh, for a short segue, right? Um, I think some people might think, you know, four meter resolution is too small to find, you know, buildings that are residential building size. And I was curious too, frankly, before I really looked at it, but turns out, right, it's actually very possible. And Jesus already knew this, obviously. But, but anyways, it's very exciting how well you can do with four meter imagery. And so uh, you can still do this, but it still means the buildings are very small, like only a few pixels in size. So it's tricky. There's a lot of edge effects. It's a long winded way of saying it, it was more involved than we thought to assign unique IDs. Um, but it, I think it is a lot more powerful once you have that. You know, given the, you know, the size and the complexity of this data set, right? It, it, it definitely begs the question then, how do you actually measure the desired output? This is something that we have, we have poked at uh, time and time again, most notably in the case of extracting road networks and then uh, determining the best routes and then times. Uh, obviously, Adam, you put together the average path length similarity or Apple's metric, you know, same sort of concept comes up here. Since we're asking for multiple things, 
you know, the, the first step is, all right, how do we actually create an evaluation metric that scores participants to not just do detection or, or uh, uh, change detection, but actually track over time. And so, uh, Daniel, you know, you wrote the baseline uh, for six. You've been instrumental um, in terms of putting this, this uh, new evaluation metric together. You know, walk us through what the metric is and, and kind of how you, you came up with the idea to put this together. Yeah, so we had as a starting point the evaluation metrics that have been used for previous SpaceNet building footprint challenges, and that is the SpaceNet metric. But in this case, since we had a time series, we had to think about how to generalize or adapt that to take the temporal element into account. And there are a couple of things that, that had to be brought in to do that. And ultimately, we realized that the best solution would be a metric that has two terms and combines them, in this case, in a, a weighted harmonic mean. And these terms account for different aspects of what a good solution uh, consists of for a problem like this. So the first term is the tracking term, which measures how well a set of proposed footprints, that is to say a proposed solution um, from machine learning model inference, uh, how well it tracks buildings from time step to time step with consistent ID numbers. In other words, it measures how well the proposed solution does at tracking what stays the same from time step to time step. The second term in our metric is a change detection term, and it measures how well the proposed solution does at detecting the appearance of new buildings. So it essentially measures how well the proposal does at what does not stay the same, what changes from time step to time step. Daniel, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, what, where do you think, sort of projecting out how the challenge would go a little bit, where do you think the most challenging aspect uh, is going to come in for competitors? I.e., you know, where do you think uh, people may get tripped up. Is it just on the detection piece, which Adam was talking about a, a little bit about, or do you think it's going to be more on the, the tracking over time piece or none of the above? The way the metric is set up, it forces um, participants to come up with a, a strong overall solution. There are ways, and we've been, we've been thinking about these as we develop the metric, there are ways to sort of game one term to get a really high score with what by eye is clearly just a not a great solution but in doing so one tends to torpedo the score on the other term so there's a sort of tension there um, you know for example in some of the um, areas of interest there's not a whole lot of construction so if there was only the tracking term one could get a really high score by just sending in a static set of solutions that had no change at all from time step to time step. But doing that gives a literal score of zero for the change detection term. And there are a lot of cases like that where really the only way to get a good overall score is to have a good overall solution. And it will be interesting to see how participants uh, navigate that balancing act. Yeah, and I, I think it, it adds a, a level of nuance uh, to this particular challenge that uh, is particularly unique. And also, uh, 
Daniel, to add another nickname to your repertoire, I think the, the best nickname for you right now is the judge. Nothing gets by you. You, you track one track and you uh, prioritize one track or one turn, the other one gets you. So uh, that's great work. You know, so and we've talked about the date. Yeah. Another thing that, that's worth bringing up is that, you know, what we did, we did look at, we intended actually to use existing metrics, right, for, for Spacenet 7. Turns out those metrics don't work well in something that's this challenging. And so you actually can get negative scores from the MOTA metric we intended to use, um, which is a problem. Uh, and so I think that really underscores the uniqueness of this challenge, right? So, you know, in, in some sense, you'd say like, this is very similar to a, a video tracking challenge, right? There are video tracking challenges out there in, in the computer vision community that have been very successful and, and we've followed those, uh, but there's important differences. And I think the, 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 re the metric is interesting partly because we kind of highlight those changes, right? And, and it, it's not even just that the change, the, not change, difference, the difference between those computer vision challenges that exist for just kind of standard video and this one, it's what's important, right? So especially I think the, the second term of this metric, right? The change detection term where you're, you're having to identify when a building appears, like that is very hard. So for our baseline model, that's the hardest part, right? And, and that might not be true for competitors, but, but for our baseline model, that, that term is far harder than tracking the change part. Interesting. But the thing that's cool is like, there's, so there's a lot of upside there, but I mean, that's often what you really want, right? You want to know when buildings were constructed or demolished, right? So if you can identify the exact timestamp when an exact building with an identifier appeared or disappeared, you know, that plays in very strongly to a lot of the use cases, both Jesus and Grace were talking about. You know, and, and Adam, you mentioned the baseline you know, for obviously for since SpaceNet 4 with each challenge, we will open source a baseline that's developed uh, by the SpaceNet team. We do that uh, to help lower the barrier of entry uh, for participants in a, uh, in a variety of other things, uh, all of which is to hopefully make uh, geospatial applications more approachable uh, for those that may not be as familiar with it. Um, how did the, the baseline do? You, we just op we open source this. You can find this uh, on the site. Uh, you mentioned the challenging areas. What, how did it do overall looking at the entire data set? And what do you think that means uh, for the challenge? Yeah, in, in, in my estimation, it, it did very well. Kind of, I alluded to this earlier about, you know, being a little worried, so skeptical about performance for pulling out small buildings at, uh, at the resolution that, that we have. But I think it's actually really exciting how well the baseline does. And and also just keep in mind, right, that say for SpaceNet 6, we had a similar approach uh, for the baseline and competitors did much better than our baseline. So this is really exciting because we expect the same thing to happen here. Um, but, but if you look at kind of traditional, the, the traditional metric of use for SpaceNet, right, this kind of intersection over union based F1 score, the scores in that sense were, were actually quite good of uh, 0.45-ish, uh, which, which is, again, given the complexities here is, is quite good. Uh, when we apply this new metric, right, this um, SpaceNet change in object tracking or SCOT metric that, that Daniel was the principal architect of, that was about 0.16. And, and that's a lot trickier. And again, it goes down to really, you're asking pe people uh, to say, when did this one building appear 
what exact time frame did it appear and what's the ID and can you track it over time? That's tricky, right? And so in our estimation, a 0.16 is actually really excitingly high for a baseline as a first stab, but there's a lot of upside. And so what we're anticipating is people will try, competitors to Space and 7 will try to use some of these video techniques that we didn't actually have the baseline. But you can, you can, if you incorporate multiple frames and you can, you can leverage that, that could be a huge boost in performance. And there's other techniques, of course, you can try that are more sophisticated. But, but along the way of saying, pretty excited about how well the baseline did, given that we used kind of off-the-shelf, mostly off-the-shelf Solaris code, which is, you know, our open source package. And then the actual matching piece was a lot of the work done on the baseline, but that's been open source. So we invite and expect people to rip that apart and improve upon it. All right. So just to, to conclude this, you know, uh, what are some of the major milestones for the challenge? You know, specifically, you know, w- you know when did this launch and what are some of the other major dates uh, that participants and those interested in following along should be aware of? Yeah, challenge launched on September 8th. Uh, and so it's, it's ongoing for about two months. And so we got quite a bit of time there to, to get involved. Uh, one thing to, to be aware of is that there's a, a baseline that's already existing, but then uh, with a tutorial that, that should come out around concurrent with this podcast of how to actually train the model on AWS. And something that's also worth mentioning is big thanks to uh, the AWS DR team and Grace for supplying some credits, um, AWS GPU credits. And so the baseline model we just talked about, if we train that uh, on, on AWS, it would cost around $50 or so. We have $250 credits uh, available for the top the first 100 people to hit the, match the baseline. So that's certainly something doable since it's open sourced. Uh, so we're really excited about that because with the support of, of AWS DR and the, and the SpaceX team in general, right, uh, lowering that barrier eventually for people to get involved. And, and you know, if it takes uh, 12 hours or so to train a model and you got a couple of months, that's a lot of time to get involved and try and improve upon this baseline and, and hopefully just crush it. Yeah, that's outstanding. And you know, as I mentioned before, you can find all of the necessary, uh, necessary information uh, on where the data set is, the, the baseline, the evaluation metric, as well as uh, links to uh, the top coder uh, registration page and leaderboard at spacenet.ai. I'd really like to thank uh, everyone for joining today, as well as thanking all the Spacenet partners uh, for making this possible. Uh, it's a, every challenge is a major lift, and it, it is amazing how much of a team effort it is uh, to put this all together. So thanks to them. And, you know, special thanks uh, to Grace uh, and Jesus for all of your help in joining today. Uh, any closing thoughts uh, on the challenge or, or anything related? Sure. Well, first, um, Ryan, Adam, Daniel, really want to say, you know, thanks for inviting AWS to join today. Uh, we're really excited to support SpaceNet 7. And one thing I'd just like to mention that I'm really intrigued about with this challenge is related to the building identifiers. You know, interestingly, by, by capturing those footprints and adding an identifier, um, that gives the opportunity for future annotation of each of those buildings and adding of metadata that can really open the door for, for many, many different kinds of analyses, you know, even much more than I think are envisioned for this challenge today. 
And from a disaster response perspective, you know, if buildings are tagged like specific lifelines, like hospitals or medical facilities or even gas stations, right? And those tags are available. Those can provide some just really interesting insights for, you know, disaster response and recovery and community resource evaluation and assessment as well. So uh, with that, I'm really excited about the challenge and looking forward to seeing the submissions from all the participants. Yeah, that's outstanding. And I, I agree. I think this, you know, we've seen this certainly with you know, all the other data resources, but particularly I think with the, to your point, with the address piece, this is a resource that hopefully we can see our, our group, the, all the SpaceNet partners, but also just the community at large uh, build a lot of follow-on work from. So I'm really excited to see where this goes. Uh, Jesus, any, any uh, closing thoughts on your end? Yeah, well, uh, I also uh, share the same excitement. Um, I think that um, uh, Earth observations on the rise and the future is going to be about higher visit or change uh, and also data fusion. So um, I'm really excited about uh, Space 7 um, uh, and also Space 6. And uh, I, yeah, I, I think a lot of very good techniques and novel techniques are, are going to come out of this. Outstanding. Well, Thanks again. And if any of you listening have any questions uh, on SpaceNet or, or for a specific SpaceNet partner, such as AWS, uh, DR, or Planet, uh, please do not uh, hesitate to reach out uh, through us. And uh, please follow along with this podcast as we'll be releasing additional content as the challenge continues to unfold and as we prepare for NURPS. So thanks for listening. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Producer Kristen here, chiming in to wish the best of luck to our illustrious training data host, Ryan Lewis, as this was his last podcast recording with us as he embarks on his next career endeavor. Thank you for all of your contributions, Ryan. Space Club rule number 33. It's not over until it's over, and it's never really over. Thank you for listening to today's show. If you'd like to hear more episodes or be kept up to date when we release a new show, please make sure to subscribe to Training Data wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to find out more information and links to the different sites and data sets and presentations and all the different content that we discussed today, you can find more at cosmicworks.org, that's cosmic with a Q, spacenet.ai, and our blog, the downlink, that's also with a Q on Medium. As you're seeing here, we like the letter Q. Music was provided by the DMV Zone, and for those of you not in the DMV, that is the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, by Redline Addiction. A uh, big thank you to Kristen Zender and Carrie Sassine from Inkytel's Marketing Group. Also a shout-out to Hardcast Media uh, for serving as our studio. Thanks for listening, and take care.